Hi, mates. You're listening to oh, Deep no. Cut. <laughs> I'm Wilson Lai. I hate it, and I'm Benjamin Yap. <laughs> I'm ambivalent, and I'm Eli Sins. <laughs> Each episode, we talk about two movies by one director, their most popular film, and a personal favorite chosen by one of us. And we'll also talk about each director's life and career to bring in context and may help us view their movies as they wanted us to. In this week's episode, Ben chose Nicholas Rogue to discuss. Which movies are we looking at today? So today I chose Nicholas Rogue and his two movies, Don't Look Now and Walkabout. Don't Look Now being the popular pick because it's supposed to be his best movie and also has been voted one of the best British films of all time. And Walkabout, which is his first solo directing effort, is the deep cut. I chose Nicholas Rogue after having seen absolutely none of his films, mainly because I saw him name-dropped in a Kelly Reichardt interview, where she was talking about how she cuts and how she's not like somebody like Nicholas Rogue. So this was a pick that was exactly not Kelly Reichardt. (laughs) (laughs) I can say now that I would have no idea if I would have seen any Nicholas Rogue, if not for that random offhand comment from Kenny Reichardt. Because <laughs> he's definitely not my style, like my usual kind of speed of director, but I've kind of grown to appreciate what he's doing. Did you get the sense that she respects his work or was it sort of like, I'm nothing like that? Oh, she definitely does. She says that she doesn't, her brain doesn't work like Nicholas Rogue because Nicholas right. Rogue is very unique in the way that he thinks about cutting and yeah. shooting. Whereas Reichardt's a little bit more... I guess you could say restrained in terms of her application of cinematic style. When you see their their films, it's sort of polar opposites. It really is polar opposites. In how directing scenes, shooting scenes, cutting scenes, the whole lot. And even maybe like the kind of content. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely the kind of content. If I had to put one word to Rogue's style or focuses... I think I would describe it as forward. It's very up in your face in a way, but it's not necessarily aggressive, but it, it's very at you. I would say, I, I could say it's aggressive. Like, it's pretty aggressive to me. <laughs> <laughs> I would also agree with Ben that it is aggressive. So a lot of people said that Rogue was a hit of his time. And I was trying to think of what are filmmakers that I know of now that Rogue reminds me of. And the first and only name I could remember was Josephine Decker, who did Madeline's Madeline, Ah. which also has an insane cutting style and also is very in your face. And that was the only other comparison I could make. But the fast cutting you could see like in maybe like I I would say like a a, like a very populist director like Edgar Wright um, in the and the pacing that he cuts at. And the the match cuts that he uses could be similar to the to the way that Rogue cuts as well. But I would say that Wright, in his fast cutting, maintains continuity of time and contiguity of space. Mm. Whereas Rogue's big thing is this kind of free associative style of cutting. Okay, be- yeah. Maybe before but that's where it we gets get interesting. too deep in the weeds yes, here. I have one word to describe Rogue's filmography or the, the movies that I've watched. And I'm just going to leave it at that and then we'll, we'll just continue on. And the word is butt cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> that is something that definitely comes up a lot in Rogue films. He loves a butt. Ready for the joke I planned for this episode? Oh, are you going to drop it now? Is it is it happening now? Yeah. Okay. Should we drum roll in? Or, 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 or is <laughs> that going to get too much? I'll add a drum roll much? in post or I won't. 
<laughs> Ready? Yeah. Yes. Deep but <laughs> They're... I'm a little disappointed, but okay. <laughs> I'll give you points for it. I'm okay with that. It was pretty unexpected, but also <laughs> not. <laughs> There's a lot of tushy in these movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you haven't left because of that joke, Ben, do you want to give us some backstory? Heavy quotation marks around the word joke. Sure. Okay, let me maybe talk a little bit about Rogue. Briefly, he is kind of a filmmaker that a lot of other filmmakers have considered influential on their work. And I picked him because I'd never heard of him, actually, and was kind of curious as to who this guy was. He definitely is considered a Hollywood outsider, even with all the accolades that have been put on him, even with the renown that he has. He's not really somebody that I feel is talked about that much. At least, like, compared to the rest of his contemporaries, I would say. Like, he kind of gets maybe left behind, except for maybe Don't Look Now. Don't Look Now being something that's maybe shown in a lot of film classrooms everywhere when people talk about editing or whatever. So he, he feels almost like somebody who's falling away. And for his later part of his career, most of the films he made were considered duds relative to the work that he made in his first 10 to 20 years of work as a director. So Nicholas Rogue was born in North London on 15 August 1928. And he passed away on the 23rd of November 2018, which is quite recently, about two years ago. He says that he was only interested in the film industry at an early age because he lived across the street from a movie studio. And so he actually started off as like a tea boy, which is a funny term now I think about it because it's Britain. So it's tea boy, not coffee boy. (laughs) (laughs) A little tea boy. So he started off really working his way up from the bottom from a T-boy to what they call a clapper loader, which I guess is the second AC that also loaded film, becoming a camera operator, and then also becoming a cinematographer where he worked on many different films. He was actually the second unit DP on Lawrence of Arabia, directed by David Lean. Wow. And he was supposed to shoot Dr. Jivago, but he was actually fired because his artistic sensibilities were too incompatible with David Lean, Mm. who is... Which kind of makes sense because David Lee is supposed to be this classically trained director right. who is very good because of that. When I think of David Lean's style, it's, it's like clean compositions, very planned out shots were on sticks, which is very different from the, the cinematography of both Walkabout and Don't Look Now. So he really started off with his base of, as a cinematographer, and I think that's why a lot of his films are very visual and they have very interesting shots. But there are also shots that are very experimental. So he was really trying to push the envelope, I would say, when he started directing. 23 years on from his start in the film industry, he became a director. And as a director, he's really characterized by an idiosyncratic style, visually and also narratively. And he uses editing in an associative way, like you said, Eli, and also kind of in a way to disorient and also to confuse and also to make meaning. And I think he was one of the big directors that really tried to push editing towards a different means, trying to ignore ideas of continuity, contiguity, and all that, and trying to like make meaning through the edit. It's like his editing style is descended from the Soviet early filmmakers like Eisenstein, mm-hmm. who yeah. really relied on editing to make meaning and to synthesize new ideas. I see Rogue as really directly descending from that. We have like a great example of that in Walkabout where the Aboriginal is hunting 
he's hammering a kangaroo and then it cuts into a butcher shop where a butcher is chopping like a ham leg or something. You know what that sequence is almost directly pulled from is Strike, directed by Eisenstein, in which there's a sequence of a violent protest happening, I believe, and it cuts associatively to a bull being slaughtered, but that has nothing to do with the plot. We don't, we've never seen this bull before in the movie. Yeah, and it's exactly the same in Walkabout. Kind of reading so many interviews about Rogue, I find that he seems to come off as, or like maybe he wants to come off as a very intellectual philosophical kind of guy and he's very interested in ideas of fate metaphysics and you'll see in don't look now the ideas of esp and like being able to see the future and when he talks to actors he loves to give them music and books as research rather than talking so much about character ideas despite that i find that his films are strangely very visceral because of the way that he cuts so aggressively as we were as we believed that he is Mm -hmm. wilson his films feel very visceral and sometimes i think the symbolism of the things he's trying to say can kind of get lost. But I'm not going to get too much into that. And let me just try and get through his biography. His first co-directing effort was actually on performance with Donald Camel, who wrote the script. Performance starring Mick Jagger, the first of three of his big musician collaborations. I saw that and it's really an acid trip of a movie. And I can't really say that I enjoyed it too much because I really didn't understand what was going on. I can have an idea of what it is, but whether it's an enjoyable experience is a totally different question. But it doesn't have the hallmarks of what we have come to know as like a Nicholas Rogue movie with with the way that he edits. I mean, everyone says that Nicholas Rogue movies, when you watch them, you know they're Nicholas Rogue movies. No one cuts the way he does. And it's hard to find somebody else, at least a contemporary of his, that is doing exactly the same kind of cutting styles. Yeah. I don't just think it's the edit, though. I also do think a lot of it has to do with the sound edit and the sound mixing mm-hmm. and the design, which we can get into later. And so the other two musicians he's worked with is David Bowie on the cult classic The Man Who Fell to Earth, which Eli and I have seen and felt. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> the only other rogue movie I've seen is The Man Who Fell to Earth. I saw it a number of years ago. I saw it on the big screen. and. I found it really tedious, which is a shame because I love Bowie. I always think it's fascinating when a movie is built around a star's persona, a non-film star's persona. But it's really a slog. I don't know. Mm. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't have much to say about Bowie as a star beyond just the sort of surface level. It's like he's from another planet. So (laughs) I don't know. It's a weird, kind of strange movie. It's disappointing when that happens. I saw Purple Rain for the first time a a couple days ago, and it was a similar sort of situation where the movie was less than good, but I I guess I forgave it enough because of Prince's star persona and just like the presence of him there and performing was enough for me. But was it enough for you, Bowie's presence and performance? And the soundtrack in Purple Rain. Yes. Does he not sing in Man Who Fell to Earth? Is no. There... He was supposed to compose the soundtrack, but he didn't because of something, like some kind of licensing thing, I think. Weird. But I think a lot of the reasons why Rogue worked with musicians was, A, I think, marketing, because that brings in the audience because they're rock stars. And B, also, he says that he likes to work with musicians because they are not actors and he wanted something, you know, 
something from a non-actor type of performance, something less trained, and something where he can kind of mold them the way he wants to mold them. And why pluck a non-actor off the street when you can have David Bowie, right? <laughs> well, yeah. but then he also uses a lot of first-time actors in Walkabout. Mm-hmm. Which it which it makes sense. You know, I was reading a little bit about the way that Walkabout is shot, and a lot of it was shot spontaneously out in the bush with, you know, all these spontaneous shots of animals and things, but coordinated mm-hmm. in a seemingly very precise way along yeah. with the actors. So they'll walk past a little lizard and Ooh. it'll be this precise zoom in on the lizard. It's full of crazy stuff like that that feels both yeah. organic and planned. Odd balance. Okay, let me just move on through this biography. So he also has a collaboration of Art Garfunkel in Bad Timing, or in its original title, Bad Timing, colon, Essential Obsession. <laughs> Very much using Art Garfunkel for the rock star pool, and also using sex as a way to pull the audience in. It was famously X-rated, and also people had a lot of problems with the kind of subject matter it has. But actually, I think... Bad Timing is a really great film, and it does a lot with narrative structure in a very kind of considered way, and probably the best of his three musician collaborations, I think. More like Art Garfuckle. <laughs> I'm cutting that. But um, The biggest shame about these two picks is actually that we don't get to talk about Theresa Russell, who was Nicholas Rogue's second wife. And she is a fantastic actress that's pretty much underseen because she worked on so many Nicholas Rogue films that bombed. She didn't really get that kind of mainstream appeal, but also because she's a very adventurous actress that really wants to do these difficult roles where she needs to be intense or, and whatnot. She really liked to challenge herself. And so I think she puts in a really great performance in Bad Timing. So I don't really want to talk too much about his film, the rest of his films. He's made a whole bunch. But I really want to note this one film in his filmography that's called Full Body Massage. <laughs> it's a TV movie starring Mimi Rogers having a conversation with her masseuse while she's getting a nude massage the entire runtime. Butt cheeks. <laughs> Butt cheeks on film. Yeah, but anyway, so that's kind of like a very quick dive into his filmography. As I said before, many filmmakers have said that Rogue has been an influence. Steven Soderbergh, Christopher Nolan, Denny Boyle have all called him an influence. People have asked Rogue what he thinks about people who cite him as an influence, and he himself has said, quote, we're all influenced by everything unless we're locked in an empty room. Don't know what he means by that, but okay. <laughs> Thank you, Nicholas Rogue. <laughs> Was he like a like a druggie? <laughs> Do you, is there information on that? I feel like he really wants to present himself as a British gentleman that has this maverick, roguish, pun intended, I guess, roguish side. Uh-huh. Like if you if you see him like in like official photographs, he's always got the scarf on. He's got the beret on. I, I'm excited to see what he looks like, and 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 I guess your listeners on Spotify can can see what he looks like with our beautiful artwork <laughs> drawn by Justina Yam. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of all I have on Rogue. I do have this one little tidbit about him and the way that he apparently treated actors. People say that he was pretty unsparing apparently toward his actors and I guess very demanding as a director and apparently in performance James Fox who plays a gangster character was apparently so disturbed by the experience that he became a Christian evangelist for almost 10 years (laughs) on bad timing Art Garfunkel 
threatened to walk off as well because of the the kinds of things that he was made to do on that film. And even the distributors for Bad Timing pulled their own name off Bad Timing because of the subject matter. <laughs> Calling their own film that they were distributing a sick film made by sick people for sick people. <laughs> so yeah, that's Nicholas Rogue. Thank you, Ben. So maybe let's first talk about Don't Look Now, but maybe I'll give a synopsis on this film. So Don't Look Now is based on a novella of the same name by Daphne du Maurier. The film is about a couple, John and Laura Baxter, who are played by Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. And they are in Venice after the accidental death of their daughter. And they're in Venice where John is restoring a church. And then Laura befriends two ladies, and one of whom is apparently gifted with the second sight and claims to be able to see the dead daughter speaking to her and is giving them a warning because Venice is dangerous and has been considered one of the best British films of all time and it actually had great box office success and Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie were big stars at the time and they, I guess, brought in a lot of audience members and it's used in classrooms to teach editing, especially the very first scene. So maybe if we start off, what do y'all think about Don't Look Now? Well, you said earlier that, that Nick Rogue was being called a, a sick man who makes sick movies just for sick people. And and, and I have to admit that uh, I, I guess I'm sort of a, a sick person. <laughs> <laughs> because I love this movie. From scene one, what an opening to a movie. It's so incredible the way that he uses cutting between the children playing outside and John and Laura inside and sort of matching actions that are happening in both places before the their daughter even dies or, or has that tragic fall. You get a sense that Nicholas Rogue is so concerned with connecting places visually and just has such an eye for graphic matches and i absolutely love that i i think overall it's an incredible film filled with really off-putting performances that are so awesome to watch i think everyone is just slightly unhinged in this which is a great wavelength for your actors to be in a horror film because it makes you as an audience just feel so uncomfortable throughout. And Don't Look Now also part of a, of a genre of films, which has propped up a lot more recently, where they try to tackle the idea of, of grief and, and sort of turn that into the horror that's haunting our protagonists. And the ones that do it now could include like a, a ghost story or Midsommar or the Babadook. But I think Don't Look Now does this incredibly well with the subjective editing that Rogue employs. Long story short, I love this movie and it was an incredible introduction into this I think director. I hereditary to that list of, of films as well. And like that one like, feels yes, so hereditary. when I think about it like in terms of the kind of horror, like it's an unsettling kind of horror, and also the idea of grief of the death of a child. <laughs> Basically lifted, but no. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, I love hereditary, but yeah. What do you think, Eli? So like I mentioned, I had seen The Man Who Fell to Earth a number of years ago. I was pretty underwhelmed. And going into your pick of Rogue, I was a little, um, what's the word? Wary, afraid. 
yes annoyed i was a little wary (laughs) but really as wilson says from the first scene it's very arresting i think it's a very maudlin kind of film and when you go for maudlin i think you have to have a lot of belief in that heightened kind of affect and rogue believes 110 percent it's like he goes for broke and lands it. It concocts such a mood of otherworldliness, but at the same time, and I think this is the key to the movie for me, I really deeply believe the couple of Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. I think that they're very authentic and care for each other. And I'm fascinated by how the movie goes over the top in a lot of ways while also achieving that kind of down-to-earth relationship. It also reminded me a lot of one of my favorite things that I watched last year, Twin Peaks The Return. I would throw (laughs) both Don't Look Now and Twin Peaks into the same category of what I would call breadcrumb cinema, wherein emotional meaning is generated by dropping clues across the piece that don't directly add up to a solution to the movie, but you can sort of extrapolate emotional meaning by how motifs repeat and are recontextualized across a piece which is sort of how movies generate emotional meaning anyway but in this case it's more kind of elusive and i think david lynch and don't look now are similar in that respect and then the ending comes and it's one of those special times in a movie where i just sort of breathe as little as possible to avoid like scaring the movie away like a deer it's just like (laughs) it it came to the ending and i felt like it was it was really something special and it had me totally wrapped and attentive in that ending and just the way that he sweeps the whole of the movie back over you and those final associative cuts is so powerful and i think a sequence that sums up Roeg really well. So I loved it. So I think the the mo- the idea of motifs, right, is something that he really tries to do to make the film feel cohesive despite like all the kind of tangents that he goes on to, right? Yeah. Okay, personally for me, the first time I watched it, I was actually underwhelmed. And I was like, oh shit, this is the best Nicholas Rogue. I'm fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I I left it and I watched Walkabout and a bunch of other Nicholas Rogue films. And then I went back to watch Don't Look Now again recently. And I can definitely appreciate in terms of like the craft. I really see what he's trying to do. And I feel like he's expanding my mind about what you can use editing for. Not necessarily just for association, but also for digression, diversion, for, for changing the tone and mood just by using a cutaway or something like that. And it's something like not everything that he shows you is important. Right. But like the way that he's doing it to create a sense of feeling more than anything else. But for me, I think even on the second watch, I still felt like that had this very strong distance from the film. Maybe it's because it's about these characters that are so extreme that I kind of get pushed away a little bit as a viewer, at least for me personally. It's hard to stay authentically emotionally invested as a viewer, where all these cuts, especially, are also so jarring that they can throw you off as a viewer, that it's hard to stay in the emotional moment. But those cuts are trying to create the emotion. Yeah. I think maybe it's just my sensibilities. Like it, it was hard to kind of reconcile that push and pull of the jarring editing that's aggressive 
and the emotion it creates and also the emotion I'm trying to invest in the characters. That yeah, I get, I get what you're saying, Ben. I think that very strong editing like that draws attention to the authorial hand mm -hmm. and to the people making the movie. But I think at its best, it somehow matches the emotion of the characters. I think a scene that exemplifies that well would be the scene of intimacy between Julie Christie and Donald mm -hmm. Sutherland's characters, which happens maybe a third of the way into the movie. Iconic scene. And the big technique of that scene is intercutting. So as the couple is making love, they're also then shown afterwards sort of getting dressed and getting ready to go out for dinner. It hits such a unique emotional register because it felt like experiencing two things at once and two feelings at once. It's not necessarily being present in either, but feeling the experience of both. And it's both in the past, experiencing the past and looking ahead. And it's in the future, experiencing the future and recollecting. Mm -hmm. It's this feeling of remembering the experience that the couple shares together and knowing in the moment that they're going to remember it. I can't think of another scene of intimacy that captures the feeling of time uniquely while also conveying sex, which is, it's a novel thing. There's a whole conversation happening now on Twitter and beyond about American sex scenes being kind of anemic. And it's not that this is more passionate, but it's more considered and thoughtful and it's doing something unique and to me that's the it's just an example of how rogue uses editing to do something unique while also keeping you on an emotional plane that's similar to what the characters are experiencing across two scenes across two points in time i think it's such an important scene not only to establish the relationship between Lauren and John, which well, not establish the relationship, but but sort of like show that it has been reinforced now that Laura has has talked to this woman who um sort of reassured her that their dead daughter's spirit is with them. But it's so beautiful the way that he presents the the sensuality and when Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's like this really gorgeous score that carries through the intercutting. Yes. Yeah. So that that score is actually a callback to the first scene, you know, the very innocent. Yeah. I think it's they call it like Christine's theme. Mm. It's the theme of the child. Right. And I think the idea is to imbue that scene with like as if the child is with them in that moment. Because to give the scene some context, the sex scene is right after Laura, the mother. She has learned that Christine is around because of the blind lady with the second sight. And so she feels very comforted by that idea that Christine is here. And there's this sense that this is the first time that they're making love in a while or something like mm -hmm. that. But I, I was reading a lot of reviews online. And I don't know, so many people were, were dunking on this scene. Really? And were, say, <laughs> were saying like, oh, did not like this unnecessary sex scene. And why was that sex scene so long? And I'm like, it's there for emotional impact, guys. It's important to understand why they're doing this at this moment and, and how much it means to them because it's growth for L Laura's character and them as a relationship. 
Also, I think that maybe for a movie that isn't so focused on the body and sort of the corporeal effect of grief, a sex scene might feel out of place, but I think it's within the thematic terrain of this movie to include that scene, and it also establishes where the characters are emotionally. I think, I mean, it doesn't really feel that long to me when I look back on it, but um, at least from a story perspective, it's very integral because it charges the film with this energy of intimacy. But I guess my big question is, what does intercutting do on a visceral perspective? Like, what does it do? Because it comes in really early, even before clothes start coming off. I mean, Donald Sutherland's already naked at that point in time. <laughs> Sutherland tushy. Butt cheeks. But Julie Christie is dressed in this scene. She's the one that initiates the sex scene, which is critical to what this scene means for her. Yes. Um, for her character. Mm-hmm. And it is from the moment that John Baxter reciprocates her kind of advance that it immediately cuts to him sliding shirts on a, on a rack. It aggressively goes into its intercutting even before you realize you're moving into a sex scene. So like I said, it's to me, it's about experiencing two points in time at once, which is something that I, I can't think of another scene that, that does that in quite this way, conveys the emotion of two points in time at once, and the thing that coheres it for me and sort of makes a third scene out of the the synthesis of these two points in time is the score. It's the thing that allows you to step back and experience both at once instead of past, future, past, future. It's just one emotional experience across two points in time. I do wonder if I'm (laughs) describing this in a way that makes any sense because it's kind of an ineffable experience. No, it, it does make complete sense. And I, I think it sort of functions how memory works. Yeah. When you like think back upon a time, you have flashes of different moments and the way that it goes back and forth means that the sex that they had was still ever so present in their minds when they were getting ready to go out, even though their actions and their expressions are so vastly different it's still with them. And this sort of cutting based on character emotion is something that Rogue does so well and so strongly that I don't think anyone else I've, I've seen comes close. Yeah, maybe scum. But I, I, I don't know. We don't have to bring that up. <laughs> has to throw a scum reference in there. I mean, I think one reading of the scene is that you can think of it as a way to very kind of graphically show you the feeling of the afterglow after sex. Mm. Right? That's like one reading of it you could have. Like if you were to say that, okay, what if the, what if I think about it in terms of the getting dressed as the so-called main scene i mean you don't have to look at it that way but if you did then it's the sex scene charging that scene with a lot of intimacy even though they're separately getting dressed but then you could also see if you do see the sex scene as the primary scene so-called then the secondary scene being the dressing up is like maybe charging the sex scene with some kind of feelings of the mundane that make it feel somewhat quotidian but maybe in like a nice way and especially before the scene they were actually like naked brushing their teeth and stuff it's very mundane use of nudity 
before we move into the sex scene. I do think it's the first option, but the fact that he really dives into the the nudity and the the actions that they go into it and, and really like shows that because he is a little bit of a perv like we can all agree <laughs> on that he loves butts but yeah and i think it, it's sort of like the outcome is, is sort of maybe a mixture of both but i do think mm. the intention might have been more of the former ben i have to zoom in on something that you just said which is that rogue graphically shows you the feeling of what these characters are experiencing right? Mm -hmm. I think that you can point to almost every scene and he is trying to graphically show you the feeling of the characters. And it's Mm -hmm. usually this kind of uncanny or unclassifiable feeling, right? Yes. It becomes condensed and conveyed in the image and in the sound. So then when the ending comes along and he shows you all these scenes that you've experienced and all these emotions that you've experienced with this scene and they all come rushing back to you and there are these feelings that are condensed to an image or two that you can't describe in words when they return to you at the very ending as john is maybe recalling his life it's this massive wave of emotion that comes over you because it's all of those things that you can't describe returning to you at once Mm -hmm as the main character is, spoiler alert, dying. Visual storytelling 101. You were saying before, Eli, you were afraid that it doesn't make sense the way you were describing it. And I feel like that's how I feel about Rogue all the time because it's hard to describe what the scene is doing without just showing you the scene because I just don't know how to describe what the effect is. Sometimes it works. Sometimes I just don't get it. Mm-hmm. But when it works, it works. But I don't know what to tell you to explain why this works. Like right. sometimes you got to see it and you just got to have the feeling that you have. Yeah. yeah. It's trying to achieve a visceral reaction in the viewer. For me, the death scene, the associative cuts to... So, okay, John Baxter dies. And then he flashes back to so-called his memories of the entire journey towards this point of his death that we see in the movie. And it's a lot of repeated shots that we've seen. And for Eli, I guess you had this feeling of a rush of emotion. And I think for me, parts of that didn't work because I felt like some of the images that I saw were not imbued enough with meaning as a motif Hmm. for me to really feel like I understood why I was looking at this. Like, why is the, the, the brooch on one of the ladies, why is that important? And we see it many times and he focuses on it and then he flashes back to it as well when he's dying. Why is that important? And in fact, it's not important because um, there's a great interview with the editor, Graham Clifford, and he talks about how they actually included many things as red herrings, as detours, as diversions that are not necessarily for meaning. They're supposed to be dead ends for the audience, for you to wonder what's going on, and then it doesn't go anywhere. But I'm glad that you mentioned David Lynch because that's also something that he does all the time where he creates unease because there are so many alleyways that go nowhere like venice (laughs) (laughs) it's a nice way to tie it in like vents you said like venice oh i thought you were making an among us reference to vents (laughs) (laughs) i mean you say that facetiously but another thing in this movie is that he does map psychic terrain onto geographical terrain of venice it does feel like he chose the city and the location very well for what's happening in this movie. 
Yeah, for a director who is like the two films of this director that we're watching are films set in the director's not the na- director's native home mm-hmm. and the way that he understands these two separate spaces and terrains is is so like he has such a great understanding of the ways to like shoot and to frame and to stage in these spaces uh that I I think he could do it better than any Italian or any Australian director could. Whoa. Well, whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> Have you ever seen Venice look like that? No, I haven't. I look think that there's and scary. Yeah. I think that there's a unique thing to we we sort of talked about this a bit with Alfredson coming into Britain and conveying British culture, right? There's something to mm-hmm. a an outsider coming into a location and being able to depict it the experience of someone coming in from the outside, which thematically fits Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and certainly literally fits both Don't Look Now and Walk About. I think this is a great time for me to tell you this fun fact I have about Please. Venice and this movie. So Pino Donaggio, who did the score, and it was actually his first time composing. Um, he was a singer before, and then he just stopped singing and was became a full-time composer because Don't Look Now launched him into his composing career. Wow. He's a Venetian. And he has this really funny quote where he explains why the film was not very popular with Venetians <laughs> because of the way that they portrayed Venice. And then this is a great quote. Quote, this is probably the reason why Venetians didn't like this whole thing very much, particularly the counselors who are afraid that this would scare the tourists. <laughs> because it really creates this sentence of like this very foreboding and ominous sense within Venice. And he actually talks about how he was trying to use music to recreate Venetian fog. Ooh. I have nothing else to add on to that, but it, it just makes sense when you watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's another one of those things. Should we talk about the opening scene in more detail? Because I feel like that's a critical scene, and it's like the scene that they show in film schools. So thinking back on this film, and how Rogue's kind of big theme for the film when he made it, and it's actually said by John Baxter, is nothing is as it seems. I keep thinking, at which points of this movie are we seeing Rogue trying to portray ESP without telling us? I don't think I have too much to say about the opening scene because it's kind of planting seeds and images that will come back later. Though, in retrospect, Ben, I do agree that it's sort of establishing the ESP that john baxter himself has it kind of is the reason why he allows himself to cut to the future and yes mm-hmm. or like cut to things that don't really make sense and like use parallel editing that's not just these two things are happening together but these two things are happening together and this guy knows what the other thing is as well and because he cuts on action when things fall between john and laura in the home and the kids playing outside yeah right? the cutting on action is the part where in my head I was like, oh shit, some, something's, something's going wrong here. But then he shifts to ESP when he starts cutting from John's face to the mm. other scene. And that really associates this idea of John sees something. But then the thing that he sees is not the thing that's in the same space as he is. In a way, that's kind of how memory works too. If you think of a particularly bad or traumatic memory, I find that there's often something mundane associated with it. Or just the the memory of the shock 
of how things were normal a moment before. Again, it's evoking something emotionally true about the experience of trauma using editing. I mean, part of it is that we, we think of trauma as the past, right? But then as a character who can see the so-called the future, he's able to experience trauma of the future. Mm. Another way to say that, I think, is that trauma lingers and grief moves up to the present from the past. So it's sort of an inversion of that to then, yeah, have him be able to perceive trauma of the future in the past. I think that's the thing that it kind of uses against the audience because usually when we do a character remember something and here's a flashback to the critical piece of information but then sometimes he would show you not necessarily cut to but show you things which are not in the past as a way to kind of play with that kind of narrative structure and i mean the big moment is john sees the funeral barge of his own death riding past him right i mean it's not really shown in the yeah cut, but it's part of that playing with uh, linearity of time, right? Like he... Or another moment where after he, he has that near-death experience and it flashes to him dangling again, but actually falling uh, off yes. this time. It's just like a quick one-second moment, but it stuck with me. To me, the emotional effect of flashing forward to something that we don't fully understand is that later on, when we're given all the pieces, there's a little frisson that comes with it i gasped when <laughs> when we understood <laughs> that that funeral barge was for john and mm -hmm. that's the final thing that happens in the movie is we're shown baxter's funeral what a chilling note to end on that he somehow either continues or is trapped in there's a sort of circularity to the yeah. way that time moves in this movie mm -hmm. and there's both a comfort and a dread in that. You can really see like the first scene and its pieces reverberate throughout the film. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like we see so many elements. Like on my second watch, I noticed a ball in the hospital scene, which I didn't notice before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. I didn't notice it because there's the red ball that Christine is playing with in right. the first scene. We do cut to it a few times very clearly. Like we cut to the exact ball falling to the pond. But then there's this moment when. After Laura faints, after hearing about Christine being, like, being present around her, she wakes up in the hospital room, and then it opens on the boy that's playing with the other kids. And then at the end of the scene, it cuts back to that boy playing with a red and white ball. And she also brought that ball in her luggage to Venice as well, which we see later on. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So a lot, of, like, so many of these elements, and even the glass, which I think in the first scene was used as a, as a jarring element right, for the sound and the image. Yes. And then they use it in his death scene because in his death scene, he kicks out a little pane of glass and then they use that to cut back to that first scene. And I think it was unplanned until they shot that death scene. Then they realized they could make that connection. From my research, it seems that they shot the whole first scene first in mm -hmm. England and then uh. they cut it together and then they went to Venice to shoot. So it's almost like they, from a filmmaking perspective, use that first scene as a blueprint and then try to reverberate its elements into venice wow. wow that's great that's incredible that, that makes that i totally get that from the final picture and it's such an effective outcome here's the thing with this film i feel like describing it doesn't really do it justice because you really just need to watch it 
to understand the effect of it. Yeah, because you really do. Yeah, it's not understanding to me. It's believing it Yeah, as you experience it. Isn't it so great? Because I feel like a lot of horror films work on the basis of the audience having a visceral reaction. But usually this visceral reaction happens to a jump scare. Mm. But with this movie, the way that it uses editing and to build atmosphere and tone in a way that's sort of, for us, it's hard to describe, allows for audiences to feel a different kind of horror within them that is not your usual jump scare. And it's done so effectively. It's more terror or dread because of the yes. elements of the unknowable rather than right. direct fear of harm. Right. And I think as a film, because it is trying so many things and like it is kind of your own experience informs the dread that you feel as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like Rogue and his editor tried a lot of things uh, and they don't necessarily know what the effect is supposed to be. Like they, they know what they're trying to do in terms of information, but they know that these things will unsettle you, but they don't really know exactly how. They just know it will. Which yeah. is kind of a feeling I have. Like they're just experimenting with different ways of unsettling you. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to talk about the the sound edit a little bit because I think yeah, there's cool. so many interesting things that happen just in moments when John flashes to something in his memory where the mix just drops off. And that very rarely happens in films where you just where there's just nothing. There's just blank space in a mix or there's just one track of footsteps running that is just so clear in your mind and it usually it takes you out because it makes you think, oh, I'm in a different physical space that is being described by these sounds. But when you're linking this back to the idea of how Rogue edits on emotion, it makes sense that your memory or your mind flashes to certain images and also just to specific sounds or no sounds at all. It's definitely just something that I, I, I do want to bring up because a very bare sound edit doesn't mean that it is a like a bad sound edit i mean he definitely uses like these very specific sounds to not to really scare you but to unsettle you and there's a great scene when after they have sex and they're just walking venice and it's really dark and there's just always sounds of either people calling out or birds and then there's this moment where John thinks he sees somebody in the red, in the red Mac, right? And it runs across and then he looks and then the camera zooms in around him and there's this really weird sound. It's almost like a bird or something. I don't know what it is. And it's just this very specific sound that I don't think you hear in any other part of the movie that's supposed to just kind of unsettle. It's not necessarily a jump scare, but it is odd and strange. And it's also because, like what you said, like the sound drops out for all these random elements to come in and even in the chase scene later on you hear dogs you hear yeah. people talking and you see people always watching them and there's so many scenes where there's just somebody staring and it's just making venice seem very hostile and strange and it must have been so easy to do because they're a film crew and people obviously will <laughs> stare stare <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering, like, with the when they fished the body out of the water, like, right. were the people that are staring, did they hire them? Or did they just pull some body out of the water and people will come? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's probably it. That's probably it. We should probably move to, <laughs> to Walkabout. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, before I move on to Walkabout, I have a great quote from the editor, which will help us move into Walkabout. Cool. So, Graham Clifford, he's a editor, and he also, he also became a director later on, and he's from Australia. So he was asked whether Walkabout was an influence on Don't Look Now, and he said, it's still one of my favorite movies of all time, but only in as much as it let me know that I could basically do whatever I wanted and he would probably like it. Oh. <laughs> and I would say Walkabout is much more of a wild ride compared to Don't Look Now in terms of editing. There's something, just th this is very specific, but there's something in Walkabout that I've never seen or imagined before on film, and I don't know how they did it, which is that there's this one type of transition that's used in only one scene when a character is telling a story where the shots cut by pages of a book flipping. Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? They're these wipes that are the pages of a book. Mm. So in terms of like anything and everything goes stylistically in this movie on the edit side, that felt like a moment of what? <laughs> It sort of felt like a let's go on an adventure kind of moment, <laughs> like a storybook. You're like, oh. I mean, that scene when they're just walking and then she has the umbrella and they're just walking through this almost idyllic. Yeah. It looks like a different place because there's a lot more greenery. It's almost like they're going on this like Huckleberry Finn type adventure. I don't know. I don't know whether that's the right reference. I have not read Huckleberry Finn, but <laughs> it felt that way. Like this kind of childlike adventure story kind of thing. Well, I think it is an apt comparison in that both texts have interesting racialized subtext and relationships. Right, yeah. Not even mm -hmm, subtext, mm -hmm. text. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, before we talk about, maybe let's just give a synopsis on Walkabout. So Walkabout is set in the Australian outback, and it's about two white school children, an older girl, she's maybe 16, and her younger brother, who is about seven, and they go out into the desert with their father, who goes crazy, tries to kill them, shoots himself, and then because the father's dead, they have to figure out how to get back to quote-unquote civilization that they know of. And while they're trying to survive in the outback, they come across a teenage Aboriginal boy who helps them to survive. And they don't have names. The girl is played by Jenny Agutter, who has been in a bunch of other sci-fi films like Logan's Run, American Werewolf in London. And the boy is played by Luke Rogue, which is Nicholas Rogue's own son. Who went on to produce a movie for future subject of the pod, Lynn Ramsey. Ooh. I, think he, I can't remember which one he produced. I think We it need was. to talk about Kevin. It's Kevin. All right. Anyway, so the Aboriginal boy is played by David Gopilo. And I think it's his first screen role. And apparently he was such a great pick for the role because... He brought all the knowledge of the Aboriginal rites and rituals to the role, the dancing, the ways that he was hunting. So I think the film really wouldn't have worked if not for the casting of David Gopilo. That was one of my questions for you, Ben, based on your research, is how much did David Gopilo contribute to the story beats for his character? All I know is that the script was only 14 pages long. Mm. And oh, they, wow. I think in terms of like the events that not events but the things that they do like what you would call quotidian while trying to survive in the desert were things that they kind of figured out as they went along and that 14 page script Rogue went in and he 
beefed it up for the studio execs so that they would realize that they were getting a full feature. But I'm not so sure about, like, in terms of major story beats and the changes from the novel. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, whether those had David's input. I think moving on, we'll just refer to the characters as the name of the actors. So Jenny is the girl, Luke is the young boy, and David is the Aboriginal. So it's just easier because they don't have names in the film. Great. As a whole, I really love this movie and I really appreciate the way that Rogue shoots the Australian outback and And he was his own animals, which is very important to know. It's incredible and just building an atmosphere through the use of a camera pan or a camera zoom or a cut it's it feels so well thought out even though i'm i'm pretty sure a lot of was just shot and then decided on in the edit but i think a really great example of this is the opening montage of the the cityscape and how that transitions into our first shot of the outback which mimics the opening shot of the film where you you're um on a brick wall and then the camera tracks sideways laterally to reveal what's behind and the, the opening shot of the film you have the the brick wall and it tracks to reveal the cityscape behind and then a bit later at the end of the montage you have that same shot but once the the camera tracks laterally you have this vast open land that's very barren just yeah the way that he approaches space and shoots space is so incredible and i think that is worth commending this film and recommending this film to people this is a video on youtube where ao scott the film critic for the new york times and he describes the film as having a sense of unmediated perception as if we were seeing the world for the very first time, which is just a great sentence to describe this film. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I just don't have words to describe how this movie looks because it sometimes just feels like this psychedelic acid trip. As if you were out in the sun for 12 hours, haven't drunk any water, and you're seeing everything with these groggy confusing as if your brain was not in the right place and you were looking at sand and animals and everything again yeah it does that's sort of how feel this movie like you're feels. tripping it's crazy i think he also does that with sound the other day i was listening to an interview with the brilliant sound designer mark mangini uh this was an interview with the no film school podcast and one of the things that mangini said was that Sometimes sound works as a metaphor and you don't want what something literally sounds like. You want sort of what it you want to create a new kind of evocative experience once you hear a sound. And what Rogue does in this movie, I think, is similar, wherein he'll give creatures and parts of the landscape sounds that they wouldn't actually have. You can't hear lightning, but there's a lightning strike that gives a little like kind of crackle Mm -hmm. sound. And when he goes on these incredible nature documentary-like extreme close-ups on animals, he'll often give them a sound that they mm-hmm. wouldn't actually have. Yeah. There's like a spider that gives a little kind of screech at Luke yeah, Rogue at one point. And all the lizards when they're crawling. Gotta shout out the wombat 
<laughs> I'm just talking about the animals now, but what wombat. I'm trying to say is... The wombat doesn't make a sound, though. <laughs> no, the, the wombat quiet. doesn't make a sound. It's so cute. MVP. The wombat's V-chill. <laughs> but I think part of what makes the landscape so evocative is not just the way he shoots it, but the way that he gives it specific, clear sounds. Yeah, and... That just reminded me of the opening montage, which cuts to these girls in this classroom making these wicked noises. I guess they're doing breathing exercises before they start singing. But is that what they were doing? I was like, are they learning the alphabet at, <laughs> alphabet at 16? Like, they're just going, buh, 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 buh. Yeah. <laughs> no, she later says that she's doing her vocal exercises. Yeah, but the music in that first scene is, yeah. is trippy. Like, I don't know, what's the name of the instruments? It's a didgeridoo, which is used by Aboriginal communities in Oceania. It's a long, hollowed-out wooden instrument. It creates sound by sort of vibrating your throat with your mouth against the end of it, and it sort of sounds like... It's a pretty good didgeridoo impression, Eli. I have practiced. You could be a didgeridoo. Human didgeridoo, Eli Sands. I'm switching careers. <laughs> because it's put on that cityscape scene it creates a sense of oh what is going on like something is off here and then it just very quickly moves into the desert i'm very interested by the variety of effects that the didgeridoo has mm -hmm. i think that in the opening scene the didgeridoo creates a dissonance between you know, whatever, mainstream white Australian society and the Aboriginal communities that we see later on. But then later on, it's used to convey the tone of the landscape. And towards the end of the movie, it's deployed when David's character is performing a courtship dance to try to woo Jenny's character. I think in that moment, the didgeridoo is used to convey Jenny's trepidation and fear of David in that moment. And to it's almost like a scare chord on David's dance. Maybe if it's okay, let's go in and talk about that ending because I have a lot of questions about it. Earlier, Ben, I asked you about how involved David was in the writing of his character. You noted that he brings a lot of the improvisation that Rogue's team did for that character, wherein David authentically knew how to hunt and knew the practices and, and art that he paints on rocks and on Luke Rogue's body. But then we come to that ending, and I had the sense of, is this white director deciding this story beat that he tries to woo Jenny's character and is rejected and subsequently commits suicide, I feel uncomfortable at that moment. I think up to that point, the movie is casually exploring the racial dynamics between these white British school children and this black Aboriginal man as they go through the outback together. But then in this moment, it feels like it's making a deliberate, more forceful story mm -hmm. choice with these characters. 
And I don't know whether to take that as, I think it's partially a scolding of the white characters and how that scene plays out and the effect it has on David's character. But at the same time, it feels exoticizing of David's practices and the dance that he does. I, I, I feel a little fishy about that moment. I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. But then the whole story kind of operates on the level of allegory or parable anyway. There's a lot of sort of, I was reading about some of the comparisons to the Garden of Eden, and I don't know what to make of, of that in terms of maybe that is idealizing or exoticizing Aboriginal culture as well. I have some kind of thorny questions about this movie and what it is doing with race in general. I think the main issue with that final part is that we're not sure why David decides to do this courtship dance for Jenny, right? And it's also because it is a pretty obscure movie in terms of David's motivations because you don't understand him. Yeah, he's not subtitled. But I don't think that it's undeniable that there is a sort of like a mutual attraction between the two that's been established beforehand. I, I think there is a mutual attraction. I, I definitely think there is. But I think the ending... If you characterize it as a suicide, then it becomes difficult. But it's whether you do. Because apparently the idea of him hanging from the tree is not... That's not how he kills himself. That's where he puts himself when he thinks he's dying. Because the kind of belief that they have is that when they die, they do not want to be touching the earth and absorbed into the ground. Oh. So the idea is that... And I mean, this is not necessarily something you can understand from the film, but apparently the idea is that he, in a way, kills himself because he dances to the point of exhaustion. Mm. Right? Because I don't know, but maybe this courtship dance is not something you can stop. Maybe you only get to do it once. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure what it is. But I guess the idea is that he gets to the point of exhaustion and then decides to put himself up in the tree because apparently this is in a book, which is that their belief is that when they feel like they're going to die, there's no escaping death. One of the things they need to do is to get off the ground, to lay their body to rest above the ground. I don't know if that helps make it less thorny. Not that I'm trying to make it less thorny, but it's just a bit more context to, to what is going on in that scene. But I think the idea that he would want to court Jenny is confusing because yes, there is right. some sexual tension, but I don't know what romance means for both of them. But I think it adds to the tragic aspect of the, the film where like at the end of the day, it is like communication blockages is what, keeps them apart and what has them like leave this place like the two white kids leave this place at the end of this film ebert has a quotation in his review of walkabout where he says it's really about quote the mystery of communication end quote so i think you're i think you're hitting the nail on the head there wilson i think that part of what's confusing me about the story decision to have david try to court Jenny, is that there is mutual attraction and interest between the two characters established, but Rogue's camera is also attracted to Jenny in a way that sometimes feels mm -hmm. inappropriate. I do wonder if Rogue, as a director, is confusing his camera's desire for Jenny with David's desire for Jenny. And it feels like a conflation in that moment in a way that subsumes David's character, perhaps inappropriately, and in a way that 
takes on a racialized dynamic that I don't know if Rogue really intended. Yeah, I think it has that sense that, I mean, the camera is in Rogue's hands. And there's a key scene where there's a very long scene of Jenny skinny dipping um, in a clear pool. And it is very long and it doesn't really need to be that long. Like you were saying, it is the camera's perspective. No one else is looking at Jenny except this. You could sort of say that Luke is there, but Luke is there as a child and he is her brother, right? And he also overlays Luke's face on a few of the early shots of of Jenny swimming in the pool. But those shots are not of David looking at the character, not looking at Jenny. So it's not, you can't argue that it's trying to show David's intentions or whatever, right? Yeah, and so I I get what you're saying, Eli. Like, it does feel odd. Like, it feels like just because you, Nicholas Rogue, think of Jenny as a nubile, sexualized young woman doesn't mean necessarily that... Which let's, which let's pause on there yes. is a problem. The British... Yeah. There's a British film board that, when reviewing the movie to give it a rating, decided that Agatha was 17 at the time of filming. She was probably 16. I I got some background on this. So before we go into the scene... We'll finish your sentence also, though, because I I cut off your sentence. Oh, yeah. So um, it's hard to tell whether necessarily what a... I think at the time he was like 40 or 50, Nicholas Rogue. What Nicholas Rogue as a man, as a white man from England, thinks is attractive sexually or whatever, is the same as what a black Aboriginal young man thinks is sexually attractive as well, right? And I mean, this is a question that I don't think we can answer, but I mean... Right, because there, there is no answer. It would differ from person to person correct. in yeah. either yeah. background anyway. And but I mean, it's undeniable that the film is trying to build some kind of rapport between the two teenagers, mm-hmm. right? It is yes. trying to do that. It is not overt because of the lack of communication, that like they cannot speak each other's language. Okay, some background on this skinny dipping scene jenny was casted when she was 14 okay and she talks about how she went to nick rogue's house <laughs> and had a conversation with him he was like yeah that's my son he's gonna play your brother blah blah, blah. and then this film went through some like i guess i like took some time for the film to get off the ground and then when two years jenny became 16 and then at that point in that period of history you only needed to be 16 to consent to filming a nude scene mm-hmm. and so um Nicholas Rogue really wanted this nude scene for whatever reasons he wanted it, right? He's a per. You could argue, and I don't really necessarily think it's a good argument, that he wanted to show some kind of like sexual innocence or something in this. I don't know. Or like, because this is the first time that Jenny takes off her clothes, right, in the film. It's supposed to be this idea that she's freeing herself from her ideas of what civilization means, right? right? Which is to be clothed or whatever. And you can make this argument, especially at the end, when Jenny's character gets, is shown to be married, and then she kind of thinks back on the time that she had in the desert. And that time that she was thinking about is a different scene where she, her brother, and David are all skinny dipping together in a different pool. Supposedly, I think trying to evoke the sense of, evoking the sense of freedom and being liberated from ideas of, Mm-hmm. western civility right so there you can make that argument it is just icky just knowing that jenny is maybe 16 or 70 in these scenes i think that argument becomes a lot harder in the context of the rest of the movie which 
pays special attention to Jenny's legs right. mm-hmm. and her skirt and her various states of undress. It's hard to talk about decisions made in the past from the present, but I feel kind of okay saying that what Rogue was doing was inappropriate. Yes. And I think that the major flaw of this movie is the way that his camera treats a gutter and her body. I think when you look at like the period, it definitely was used, like the sexuality of it and the nudity was definitely used as a way to sensationalize the film. And I think you see this in Nick Rogue's body of work. He's into, I think, using these tools because he wants the eyeballs. You can argue that it makes him a perv. He can maybe argue, and he's never said this, but like you can make an argument that he was doing this for the financing or whatever, right? Yeah. Th- there are reasons for doing these things. They're not necessarily good reasons, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They're not good reasons. So that interview with Luke Rogue that's on Criterion, he sits on this chair and right behind him is a poster for Walkabout. And you know what's on the poster? What? It's the image of Jenny in the water, mm-hmm. in that skinny dipping scene. And that's what's used to publicize the film. And so you can definitely see that this is what they're doing, that they're using the sex and like the sexualization of a young woman to draw audiences to this. It's definitely right. yeah. what they were doing. Yeah, it's wrong. Yeah, that scene definitely made me very uncomfortable. And now knowing the context and also how old Jenny was, it does not make it better <laughs> at all yeah it, it makes it much worse really. yeah it really does and make like, it much knowing worse. that she was 14 when she was casa and it almost felt like they waited for her to get mm-hmm. to 16 makes it feel very it makes it yeah. worse not great yeah yeah the thing that's maybe most interesting about this scene despite its ickiness is that it is intercut with david hunter yeah and i wonder what you to make of that I think that the choice to intercut that scene with David Hunting crystallizes for me more when we later on see white Australians hunting in a way that is conveyed as wrong. There's there's sort of two types of hunting. There's the hunting of the Aboriginal peoples as conveyed by David, which Rogue shows as being more respectful and sort of a necessary part of living out in the wilderness. And then there's the frivolous, excessive Mm -hmm. slaughter of the white Australians. So, I mean, you know, not a great movie for cruelty to animals. (laughs) But but I, I see that choice as being part of what Rogue wants to say about how people, particularly white people, interact with the environment what i'm struggling with is that definitely on its own the the scene where the the white hunters come in and shoot everyone is displayed in a way that shows you david's emotional response to the way that they kill the animals you know it's fast it's brutal and it's it's a massacre right they are shooting so many animals yes Mm -hmm. in a very short span of time because that's what guns let you do And you see that on David's face, like he is dejected Mm -hmm. watching them do this. Yeah, and then you also get Luke coming in, seeing the animals, and it's a great moment and like really interesting when he comes in, he looks and then animals freeze. And a bunch of freeze frames happen after that. Yeah, it's really weird. Like he looks, animals move for like a second, they freeze. He looks, animals move for a second, they freeze. And then later on, he looks and then they unfreeze and they keep moving. And it's, it's like this cacophony of movement. 
of the animal's response to the gunshots. But for this scene in particular, like this intercut between Jenny and the hunting, I can't get away from the fact that watching David hunt is still quite brutal to watch. And he's bashing the heads of animals and he is like spearing them and it's very visceral. I feel like they are intended to be jarring cuts where you like, he, he's presenting Jenny swimming as this is like pure and natural and smash cutting into David killing an animal. But also like in a way which is also like pure and natural so showing two sides to it but Mm -hmm. having the two sides being so vastly different from each other i i think like at least in my mind that's what he was trying to get it it did not work on me just because i was like really off put by how he was shooting her body in the first place that it it already took me out in that way it's sort of similar to the way that they edited the sex scene in don't look now and the difference in tone between the two scenes that are intercut together. I think there are other scenes of hunting that Rogue purposefully conveys as brutal. You know, we mentioned the scene where David's hunting and it's intercut with a butcher shop. But the music in this scene makes me feel like he's conveying the hunting in the moment of Agatur swimming as as part of the same system of living out here in the desert where it's kind of a necessary part of survival, even if there is violence in it. So I, I don't know. That I, I think I think that there are a lot of types of scenes, like I was saying about the use of didgeridoo, where the same action kind of takes on different meanings, which makes the thematic intentions of the movie a little bit slippery to pin down Mm -hmm. nudity in one scene means a different thing from nudity in a different scene hunting takes on different meaning across different scenes it's a little elusive i think if you look at this film as something that's trying to be a parable or allegorical right it's yes it's a film of law of dualities right supposed civilization and and the outback there is that kind of callback to western like the genre of the western ideas of dualities right so-called savagery and civilization all that white and black it is trying to present all these dichotomies and i don't think this is a great reading of this but i feel like it is something that they might be trying to do but if we think of this garden of eden thing of this male slash female dichotomy right and it is cutting between jenny as a woman and david as a man Mm. and then it feels like maybe he's trying to suggest something about virility and Mm -hmm. sexuality right like it's not a great reading but i think you can argue that that's what they were yeah yeah when you put it like that it makes sense i think that with if you go with that reading the score shows that sort of dynamic as a positive thing that then later gets upended by the things that come between them chiefly the language barrier the history of colonialism and the imbalance of power between a white character and a black character as specific to australia so i i I don't know the things that the parable is stating are right and wrong Mm -hmm. sometimes feel a little bit confused by how rogue is capturing race and 
treatment of animals and sexuality. So I find this movie evocative and superbly crafted, but on the thematic side, a little bit confusing and hard to contend with. Mm -hmm. I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily think that the movie tries to say anything is right or wrong. I mean, it definitely is trying to portray like those white hunters as quote unquote more savage or whatever. Right. And we can talk about this maybe like there's a few digressive scenes of white people doing stuff. And there's a scene with Mm -hmm. the weather balloon people, which (laughs) I found very strange. When I was looking through the movie again, it's like, why is this scene here? And it's a bunch of white dudes. And so they're working on weather balloons or something. And then there's three of them playing cards. And on the cards is naked pinup women Mm -hmm. or like topless pinup women. Uh, And they're playing cards. And then a lot of them are trying to look down this one woman who is working their shirt for some reason. And that's all there. And I think I, I struggle with that scene. Like, I don't know what that's about. And then there's also the scene of this white family that's living quite close to the desert. And in fact, the white woman actually meets David, but David doesn't bring Jenny and Luke to them. But they're making sculptures, and for some reason, they have Aboriginals helping them as well. So there are a few of these digressive scenes where the so-called civilization and the outback clash. What do y'all make of these I found them as really weird. I didn't really... (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, the same. (laughs) I see what he's trying to say... But in a movie that is is so much a, like a tone poem, these moments where he is really trying to drill down themes did not work for me. But it is fine because I'm willing to like have those scenes, but also have the amazing tonal stuff and the beauty of the outback because that is so incredible. But I don't understand why it's there. I don't see the use for it other than to just like indulge Nick Rogue trying to say something with this movie. The sculpture scene for me is so weird. Like, I don't yeah. know what to do with that scene. Like, what's happening here? <laughs> it's definitely like, oh, well, they're exploiting the like the Aboriginal folk Maybe, that yeah. is working But it's, it's not clear at all, and you don't know what's going on. I mean, I would say the weather balloon scene maybe is trying to make some kind of argument that whichever side of this dichotomy that you are on men want to look at women or something? I I don't know. Right. I think as part of the kind of parable or even almost fairy tale-like worldview that this movie espouses, there's a lot of reduction and simplification of kind of everyone. And I don't know. I I, I sorry, I think I'm running out of things to say about walkabout. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But I, I think despite I feel like there's so many issues <laughs> like <laughs> with certain scenes, but the fact that I still like enjoyed this film, and I, I can say that this is a film that I loved, speaks to how incredible the other moments are crafted, and, and the movie itself, how, how incredible the, the scenes where they're just hanging out and they're just walking through different landscapes which can in so many ways be shot and directed so monotonous, like, so mm-hmm. in such a boring way. Rogue is able to capture so much life in barren landscapes, which is so incredible to me. And to someone who, like, shoots a lot of stuff and is a DP, 
it's so beautiful. I, I there's a moment in this film where he shows I think it's probably 10 shots of of the sunrise just from oh, different yes. angles and different like lenses and it's it really it just took my breath away. It, it's so beautiful. I think despite the confuse like some parts are confusing, some parts are challenging or iffy. Yes. Because of how it's so maximalist in its style, mm-hmm. right? Everything is jarring that it always just makes you forget about those things because it's moving into new things. It's always trying some new shit to evoke some kind of sensation in you. Yeah. And maybe that's the point of those jarring scenes as well, to evoke a response, to right. be challenging. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we haven't really compared the films, but like thinking about those, like the two scenes of sexuality in the two films... And having seen his other films, Rogue never cuts a sex scene or a nude scene on its own. He loves to intercut with other things. Hmm. Wow. Um, and I don't know whether that's a way to make it feel like he's being more artful about those scenes of nudity. But he definitely is trying to do something when he does that. Maybe the point of the hunting in Walkabout is to jar you so that, so that you can't just so-called enjoy looking at Jenny so it had to jar you with those hunting scenes. Or like in Don't Look Now. So it's not just a straightforward sex scene where you're just like, okay, this is just going on. It becomes a sex scene that has a purpose or like is trying something new. Maybe that's what he's trying to do. Maybe he's trying to use nudity and sex in a way that's not just for titillation. Even though he knows that titillation gets people in the theater as well. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's the strategy he's trying to employ. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But is there anything else that you both can find, like, common about these two films? Well, there's this small stylistic thing that he likes to do, which made me think about... I think it was in Every Frame of Painting video where he was talking about how Jackie Chan or Hong Kong action films love to show action multiple times. Yeah. And there's this moment where, at the start of the walkabout, where... The dad tries to shoot the kids and then kills himself and blows up the car. And that moment of the dad like shooting himself is replayed five different times from different angles. Mm-hmm. And I like I think that is a is a calling card for, for Rogue because that happens in, in Don't Look Now when John dies or ne- nearly dies and dies at the end. I think that happens two times. And like how moments are replayed over and over again. When he pulls Christine out of the water, there's also very subtle double actions as well right right he pulls her out of the water like three times almost yeah (laughs) and he like reverses time a lot and um the editor talks about that a lot talks about doing that and how that kind of reinforces action yes yes uh, emphasizes like moments of what do you call it intensity yes great stylistic choice for really great effect i think we gotta wrap it up soon this this combo is running long okay okay man we didn't even talk about the scaffolding scene in in don't look now it's crazy. I love Don't Look Now. It's POV shots of him looking down at the, the bishop. And Bishop's like looking up at him. And you're like, <laughs> oh, uh, what's going on in your face? That is one bishop. fishy bishop. Like, there's a bunch of other digressive stuff in Don't Look Now. Like, if Walkabout has digressive scenes, so does Don't Look Now. Like, I don't know what's going on with the bishop so much. He keeps coming out. And I'm just like, why? Like, when he dies and the bishop wakes up. Yeah, it's wild. Sorry, it's so random. They're all connected, I guess. <laughs> like they're all connected through the spiritual realm or something. I, don't know. I think the digressions in Don't Look Now make it feel like 
evoke the feeling of searching for meaning in the wake of a trauma or grief Mm. where John and Laura are trying to make sense of what's happened to them and oftentimes fail. And that is similar to the feeling of looking for meaning in all the specificities of don't look now as a viewer and failing. I have a question that to ask both of you to wrap it up. Yeah. Right. Because I keep mentioning that Rogue's films are used in classrooms. Yeah. And we keep talking about how like it's hard to describe what the hell I'm looking at. So if you were to look at scenes from Rogue's films, what are you supposed to learn? <laughs> that is the question. I think one of the takeaways for me is that as filmmakers, something to strive for that's unique to the language of sound and image, not just spoken word, is that you can convey intellectual and emotional meaning without using things that can be described. Mm -hmm. And that maybe it is a strength to drive for that ends, to find and commit to film the things that cannot be put into words the emotions and the sensations and the experiences and the ideas that can't be described so wow so yeah there is a bit of a conundrum in trying to study and talk about movies like these two we've picked today because of how Rueg obfuscates description Mm -hmm. through his style but then the takeaway for me is that you can do that on your own and find your own things that you can't describe and try to convey that or not even try to capture something, but create something new that evades description. I think what you're saying, Eli, is really about how the moving image as a medium is unique. Like, and I think Rogue himself talks about this. Like he has a quote where he says, movies are not scripts, movies are films. They're not books, they're not theater. It's a completely different discipline. It exists on its own. I would say that the beauty of it is it's not the theater. It's not done over again. It's done in bits and pieces. Things are happening which you can't get again. I think he's one of the filmmakers that really tries to push the form and like what you can do with the form. Yeah. Especially editing is the main thing about films, right? Yeah. Right. And he is using it and like milking that ability as much as he can. Right. And it's, it's quite cool. Like he's trying and like it doesn't always work for me, but I see what he's trying to do in terms of advancing the medium or something what is what is so commendable to me is how rogue approaches each scene to try to stretch the medium as much as he can or as much as possible when i was making uh my short film my thesis film in college i made it a note to myself to try to do one cool stylistic thing in every scene and make it a different stylistic thing in every scene. Just because it's something that I felt that I enjoyed and I think is a thing that makes film so special is what you can do with style, so why not play around with it? And I think what I love about Rogue is that he's not afraid to play around. And if you don't get it, you don't get it, but he's... He he probably had a lot of fucking fun doing it, and <laughs> I had a lot of fucking fun watching it. Hell yeah. So thank you, Ben. <laughs> yeah, thank this. you, Ben. Great choice. 
I think for me, Rogue reminds me of like what you can do with the image that you can kind of figure out something new mm, again. Yeah. I can't think of so many people who are trying to do such novel things with the medium. It feels still quite singular and novel, even watching these films 50 years later. And a lot of people say that he was ahead of his time, although he de- never wanted to be called that. He was like, I want to be in my time. This I'm doing it now. Mm-hmm. Why does it take 20 years for people to appreciate my shit? <laughs> <laughs> It's like he's out of time more than in his time or of a later time. He's pretty singular. Transcends time. And so I guess that's it for this episode of Deep Cut. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review because it helps us keep making the show and so other people can find us. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when the next episode drops. You can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. And thank you so much to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork this week. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Ba-da-ba.